0: It's the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount Matthew seven thirteen. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Thanks, Steve.
1: Thanks, Dave. Well, life has a way of introducing us to new ways of thinking, but those new ways of thinking may not always necessarily be accurate or true. A little girl was sitting on her grandfather's lap as he read her a bedtime story. From time to time, she would take her eyes off the book and she would reach up and just stroke, just touch his cheek his wrinkled cheek. Then she began alternately to stroke her cheek and then his cheek. Grandad, did God make you? Yes, sweetheart, he answered. God made me a long time ago. Grandad, did God make me too? Yes, he assured her. God made you just a little while ago. Oh, she said, feeling his face again. God's getting better at it now, isn't he? <laughs> our perspective influences our conclusions. From her point of view as a smooth-skinned child, it must have seemed utterly mysterious how someone could have a cheek like that. And you can see how she arrived at her funny conclusion. Well, sometimes things that we grow up with or that we learn in childhood can stick with us and they may not always be worth following. Hopefully they are. For instance, I learnt this catchy song in Sunday school. Now, trust me, I'm not a singer, but, you know, The wise man built his house on the rock. Anyone know that? Anyone? Yeah, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Yep. The rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man built his house upon the sand, the rains came down, the floods came up, and the house on the sand went splat or crash, depending on where you come from. So... And then it's got this stanza at the end, and this is what led me astray. It says, so build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessings will come down. The blessings will come down as the prayers go up. The blessings will come down as the prayers go up. So build your life on the Lord. Well, because of this song, for many years after I became a Christian, I completely missed the point of Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. I'd tell myself I'm a wise man now because I'm a Christian I've built my life on the Lord I'm, I'm following Jesus way I thought because I was safe in the arms of the Lord that I was exempt from having to think about the warnings in his sermon and the obedience required because they didn't really apply to me because I was safe on the rock build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ you'll be wise Well, my perspective influenced my conclusion. I'm going to explain a little bit about why that's not an adequate explanation. But just so that you understand the significance of where I'm coming from, I just want to show you the principle of perspective. We can just have a picture up here. When we were on holidays at uh, St Helens a couple of weeks ago, I was a bit along Bay. And we're walking along near a, a, a higher boat higher place. and I looked up on top of this power pole. And here's this pelican It's perched up there. Now I can guarantee you that pelican had a different perspective on Binelong Bay from the one I had down lower. Depending on where you are is what you see, your perspective will influence your conclusions, What you, the, the information that you gather. For instance, along the street, um, the houses along our street have different perspectives. Just show the next one. Um, this this photo is taken a couple of years ago, um, further along Dion Crescent. In fact, it's right in front of Jason Summers' house, the minister at St Andrews Presley Church. And you can see his perspective, and he looks out over Ben Lomond, etc. But yesterday, yesterday afternoon, I took the following photo from our back deck. That's the view from our place. We get a different view of the Tamar River. Mind you, that view can change as well, because in time, you know, depending on the time of season and the time of day, we can get a different view. There's another one of a morning that was a view from our deck one morning last year and another time the the view is like this one it was i don't it's not real clear but there was a beautiful rainbow there and it was just glowing over the other side so our perspective governs what we see what we conclude from what we see and the perspective I had about the Sermon on the Mount didn't help me to see what Jesus was saying. Now, I just want to give a qualifier here. I can't possibly hope in one sermon to traverse all the territory to do with obedience. So my goal in the sermon today is to take you up, if you like, to a lookout, a vantage point from which we can look at the terrain of what gospel obedience looks like, how it fits together, why it works like it does, because it will help you a lot. Because when I came to understand the significance of what Jesus was teaching in his Sermon on the Mount, it was like the blinkers came off. He gives much teaching, doesn't he? He, he There's all kinds of exhortations through the Sermon on the Mount. Ha, have a look at some of the, the things that we've just read. Enter through the narrow gate. Watch out for false prophets. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness before others. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. He says, forgive and you will be forgiven. There's all kinds of practical teachings in this sermon but if you think you're already wise you're already in Christ you're already building your life on the Lord Jesus Christ and it doesn't really apply to you in the same kind of way that it's really designed for non-Christians then you're going to miss the point look at what Jesus says He says, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he drives it home with an illustration. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. So if we hear the words of Jesus and we put them into practice, that is, we do them, then we're like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So he's saying it's quite possible to hear what Jesus is saying but then to go away and not do anything about it. And if you go away and don't act on what you're hearing, you're foolish. You're a fool. Because what Jesus is teaching us is truth. It's revelation from God. It's God's way. It's the best way. It's the wise way. So my aim today is to take you to this vantage point see the significance of what Jesus is saying and then give some practical tips about it. And Romans, the whole of the book of Romans really spells out for us the life of Christian obedience. It took Paul 16 chapters to unfold it and he bookends Romans with the statement the obedience that comes from faith. Look at Romans 1, I just just. Quickly read to you Romans 1 and verse 5 and then the, from uh, the end of Romans 16. And it says this, I'll pick up about verse 4. Who through the Spirit, he's talking about Jesus, a descendant of David, who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in, uh, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace And apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. So to become a Christian is to come into a relationship of obedient faith. Faith that results in obeying God. Romans 16, he concludes... With this, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles, that's people like us, All all the non-Jews who'd grown up without Torah, without knowing the ways of God, might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Might arrive at the obedience that comes from faith. But we know that none of us get right with God by obeying God. Who among us can obey God? So there seems to be a bit of a conundrum. Jesus is saying, if we listen to what he's saying, we need to act on it or we will be fools. And yet, how can we do that? Who among us here has acted on all these things that we're taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Who among us consistently puts into practice turn the other cheek forgive your enemies do not look at a woman to lust or you'll commit adultery in your heart don't call someone a fool or you've murdered him in your heart it, the, the further we go into this sermon the more we realise how far we fall short and It's not as though there's a problem in terms of inconsistency in the Bible. The inconsistency actually resides in us. The problem is with us. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is filled with all these commands. And like a doctor advising a patient, Jesus stresses the importance of acting on what he says... It's wise to heed God, foolish to ignore him, but the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand and any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Look at what Paul, that's, that's from Psalm 14, that quote, and it's repeated again in Psalm 53, almost word for word. Two Psalms saying exactly the same thing. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. All have gone astray. And it's vital we be clear about something stunningly important here. We are all foolish by nature. It's easy to look at an atheist and say, what a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. An atheist must be a fool. And it's very similar to my attitude toward the Sermon on the Mount. I'm okay, mate. I'm building my life on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm converted. I'm a Christian. This doesn't really apply to me. It's the heathen, the great unwashed, that need to listen to this message. And it's easy to think of ourselves as superior to others what does paul say in how he applies this in romans 3 he says what shall we conclude then jews and gentiles alike are all under the power of sin As it is written, and he quotes Psalm 14 there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Our obedience cannot possibly be the root cause of our salvation because we have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. So how can we possibly be an exception? How can we be obedient to God and earn his favour? It's utterly foolish to think that we could ever get ourselves right with God by living obediently enough to please him. The first lesson we need to learn as we go up and survey the terrain, as we look at look out from this this landing, this vantage point, this lookout, the first lesson is that without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, is there an inconsistency here? We're told there's none who seek him. And then we're told that he rewards all who earnestly seek him. What's going on here? If we find ourselves starting to seek after God, if, the, if earnest desires rise up within us to know God, something must have taken place to make us an exception to the rule of no one who understands, no one seeks God, no one who does good, not even one. Something has changed and it's not because of us. It's got to be because of the grace of God. Our obedience can never be the cause of our salvation. But it is the inevitable result of being born again by God's Spirit. Only those made right with God by the Spirit of Christ can please him as they follow in Jesus' footsteps, even though it's imperfect, even though we follow him imperfectly. There are no perfect Christians, but there is a perfect redeemer. And Jesus is saying, if you listen to these words of mine, you will enter through the narrow gate. If you act on them, if you put into practice what I'm teaching you, you will come to the end of yourselves. You will realise, I can't do this. It's impossible for me to live this way And if you then sink to your knees and you cry out and say, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Will you come to me, Lord? Will you you be my hope and my strength? Will you be my salvation and my saviour? He will hear your cry. He will come to you. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you, says the Lord. So... He's teaching us, if you like, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Jesus is giving us this teaching and he wants us to put put it into practice. He wants to be good students so that we learn from our failure what it is to be a sinner. We learn from our failure what it is to fall short and to fail to measure up. And then he says, now you're at the place where faith is takes over now you're at the place where you can begin to learn and to grow in my strength with my help now you can begin to mount up with wings like eagles and run and not grow weary and walk and not faint now you can learn not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord now you can begin to learn that unless you're born again you cannot enter the kingdom of god God accepts and redeems us on the ground of Jesus' perfect obedience, not our imperfect efforts. Listen to what Hebrews 5 teaches us. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. All who obey him, all who hear and draw near. Because we discover there is one who is obeyed in our place. There is one who has done it for us. And we say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is impossible with man is possible with God. He has done it. I have a redeemer. And there is joy and there is hope and there is peace, not on the basis of our performance but on the basis of Christ's performance in our place. Our obedience can only come from a place of grace because only God's grace can digest sin and failure and convert it into flesh and blood of healthy life and faith in Christ. Let me say that again. Only God's grace can digest sin and failure and convert it into the flesh and blood of healthy life and faith in Christ. To misunderstand the proper relationship between God's grace and our obedience will send us in the wrong direction and leave us up the proverbial creek without a paddle. Pharisee-type believers will unconsciously think they've earned God's blessing through their behaviour. God is pleased with me. I've had my quiet time seven times this week. I've been functioning well. I've been praying for so-and-so. And And guilt-laden believers will be the opposite. They'll be quite sure they've forfeited God's blessing through their lack of discipline or their their disobedience. And both will have forgotten the meaning of grace. Grace. Because they've moved away from the gospel and slipped into a performance relationship with God. But we know that the gospel does result in, it does bring about a living faith obedience to God. Acts 6-7 says... Um, it tells us that a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. That was the hallmark of them being saved. They are now obedient to the faith. Paul informed the Romans that everyone had heard about their faith obedience. Romans 16, 19. Noah and Abraham displayed faith obedience. Look at Hebrews 11. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, in holy reverence... He built an ark to save his family. He obeyed God. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Now, he wasn't saved because he went, But his salvation was displayed by his going. God had chosen him. And the faith that he had in God was made clear and confirmed and was seen by his obedience. 1 John 5 tells us that obedience is like a litmus test of true faith. Just as we can rely on litmus paper to change colour as an indicator of the presence of acid. So we can rely on obedience to God's word as an indicator of a new heart for God. It's a sign of newfound faith. It's a sign of new birth. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, 1 John 5 tells us. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice it's not saying, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even your obedience. It says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That is our reliance on, our trust in, our looking to the God who is our perfect Redeemer. The one who has obeyed in our place, our Lord and our Saviour. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. True faith obeys Christ because it is moved to do so by the love of God. If you love me, said Jesus, you will keep my commands. Second Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us, controls us, impels us, motivates us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. A a kind of divine logic starts to work in the converted heart. We realise Christ died for me therefore I ought to live for him. And we, we begin falteringly like babies learning to walk the Christian life. And we stumble and we fall. We, we skin our knees. We make mistakes. And, and the father is pleased with us. Just we're, we're going through this stage now. We've got a little granddaughter absolutely on the verge of walking. She turns one at the end of this month. And she's got the strength and everything she could be doing. She's just about there. And there's, there'll be just there'll be cheers all around. There'll be yay when she does it. And and she won't walk perfectly. We've got another one who's just turned one, and he walks like this. When, when he has to turn around, he's got the penguin kind of. He's got the the penguin shuffle. But we smile and we laugh, and it brings us delight. Now. He can't run 100 metres, he can't do long jump, there's all kinds of things he can't do. But he's learning and it's exactly the same in our Christian life. When we come to this revelation and we're born again and we come to living faith in Jesus, we start to make baby steps. We start to walk. And sometimes the way we turn around is very awkward. We're, our repentance is not always instantaneous. We don't always grasp and see things like we should. Sometimes we're slow. But the Father does not reject us. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We are accepted in the beloved. We are accepted because of Christ, not because of our performance. We're accepted on the basis of what he is on our behalf, not what we do to try and earn his favour. And that's just such a big difference. So Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love, faith working by love. Out of the love of God that now compels and controls us, we make steps of faith. First Thessalonians 1.3 says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel just becomes our motivator. We say, wow, he died for me. Lord, help me to live for you. And we start stepping out and walking in obedience. So, let me just give a couple of practical examples and, and then some, some closing, hopefully helpful pointers from someone who's, who's made a lot of mistakes and who's learned the hard way. We really have to take on board the pers- this perspective that I've been saying. Think of perfectionism, it is a killer. Striving to be perfect is a futile pursuit when we have a sinful human nature. You've set yourself up for failure. Yet, many of us keep going down that road. The answer for us lies not in giving up just because we inevitably fail, but to learn by our failures to run in such a way as to win the prize... Paul says to the Philippians, he says, not that I've already obtained all this. He painted a picture of, you know, his desire is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in in his sufferings. And he says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So lay hold of, of what Christ has laid hold of you for. He if he if you are called and chosen in him, hold on to his calling of you, hold on to his to your chosenness in Christ, hold on to his obedience and his redemption on your behalf. Hold on to him. Because in the end it's going to be his holding on to you that keeps you holding on to him. Look to him and be saved. Rely upon him. Trust in him because he will carry you through. He is able to do more than you ask or imagine. So it's not... The answer, does, the solution does not lie down the pathway of becoming Perfect. Our goal is to become more Christ-like, more dependent on the Lord, to know him better, not to pray perfect prayers or to show God how proficient we are in living the Christian life. Think of it in relation to parenting. Trying to be the perfect parent is the wrong way to go about it. Of course, every parent wants to be the best they can be for their child. You know that the welfare of your child hinges upon how you treat them, how you bring them up. But we must understand that we will make mistakes as parents. You, you're going to make the same thing applies to being an employee. The same thing applies to mastering anything in life—a musical instrument, or you know, getting proficient at sport, whatever it is. The, the solution lies in trusting Christ to be strong enough in you to bring you to the place where you will need to be. So in relation to parenting, true parenting is about trusting Christ who uses parenting to perfect you, to draw you on and to build you up, to... to f- Take away the dross and build your character in Christ through your failures and through the the selflessness that will be required as a parent. As we parent, God makes us better parents despite our failures. So we can rest in His love, we can look to His grace. This is how we train ourselves to be godly, and it requires patience. And persistence, what the Bible calls perseverance. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. So let me tell you a story, just a brief story. One day a farmer's donkey fell into a well. I think we've got a picture here somewhere of this. Here we go, poor guy. Poor little donkey, he's fallen down the well. The trapped animal cried piteously for hours as the farmer tried to figure out what to do. Finally, he decided the animal was old. The well needed to be covered up anyway. It just wasn't worth it to retrieve the donkey. So he invited all his neighbours to come over and help him. They all grabbed a shovel and they began to scoop dirt into the well. Poor guy and poor donkey He's going to be buried alive. At first, the donkey realised exactly what was happening and he cried out horribly. It nearly broke the farmer's heart. Then, to everyone's amazement, the donkey quietened down. A few shovel loads later, the farmer looked down the well and was astonished at what he saw. With every shovel of dirt that hit his back, the donkey would shake it off and step on it. As they continued to shovel dirt on top of the animal, he would shake it off, step on it, and he would rise a little bit higher. Pretty soon, everyone was amazed as the donkey stepped up over the edge of the well and trotted off. The very things that were shoveled on top of him, he trampled underfoot and it raised him higher. Did the donkey save itself? Well, not really. Without the actions of others, it was doomed. If there was no shoveling in, there would be no salvation for the donkey. Did the donkey have to work? Well, yes. It had to do some trampling but it could only work with what was provided. It it couldn't put in an order, but can you give me some planks here or some stones? Can you make this job easier? It had to deal with what was given. Life is going to shovel dirt at you. All kinds of dirt. You will encounter unexpected problems. You're going to fail to measure up. You're going to disappoint people. Someone's going to get upset with you at some point. The way forward is not to struggle harder and try and please people more, nor even to lie down and be buried under despair. Instead, process your dirt. Tread it down as it comes your way. Confess your sins to the Lord and to others, and you will be forgiven. Trouble and failure are laid to rest under us by Christ as we cast our cares on the one who died to deliver us from evil. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of of our Lord Jesus be with you. Look to the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and you will rise up in faith. So just some tips and pointers as as I close. I encourage you in, in growing in obedience to... Don't become passive in your faith. Take initiative to serve the Lord. It's not let go and let God. Rather, it's pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Never be lacking in zeal, says Romans 12, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And as you engage in these things, even imperfectly, you will grow. You will be built up in your faith. The, the key to doing this well, though, lies in making a conscious attempt to appropriate, to take home into your heart your justification and forgiveness in Christ. You've got to realise it's not resting on your performance, it's resting on Jesus' performance. You are justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And your obedience is prompted by that faith that comes from the Lord. It is the gift of God, not by work, so none of us can boast. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he created in advance for us to do. So he's able to do more than we ask or imagine according to the power that works in us. So instead of collapsing in despair under a load of guilt and shame, confess it to Jesus and shake it off. That's taking to heart the gospel. That's appropriating your justification. It's saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I I know I've fallen short, but I know Christ has died on the cross for my sins. I want to grow in obedience. Will you be my helper and strength? And you cry out to God. And, and you confess your sin and you shake it off by replanting your trust squarely in his love and forgiveness that comes through Christ. And you never doubt God's love and grace comes to you through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. It's, it's yours. He died for you. Instead of shrinking back in shame, draw near in prayer. Cry out to God. He will not despise a humble and a contrite heart. A broken and a contrite heart. Not a whole and perfect heart, but a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. Beware of becoming discouraged or resentful. Refuse to become like that older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that a righteous person falls seven times and rises seven times. Yes, the younger brother definitely did the wrong thing. He he. You know, he wanted his inheritance ahead of time. How rude to force that on his father. The father did it for him. He went off and he squandered it and he came back and he cried out and he said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And the father said, silly, you're my son. And he put the ring on his finger and he killed the fatted calf and he celebrated and he said, this son of mine that was lost has been found. He, he he was gone but he's back home and I'm happy. And the older brother said, That's not fair. How unfair. So beware of becoming discouraged or resentful. It will always keep you from the party. You'll always stay outside stewing in your juices. We're never down and out with the Lord. All that's needed is mustard-sized faith. That's all you need. From little things, big things grow. Count on it. He will not leave you nor forsake you. I'd say, finally, above all, pray for a fresh working of God's spirit in your life. Set aside some extended time to pray and meditate on the gospel To seek the Lord, invite someone to pray for you. As Paul reminded the Galatians, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? This is how you build yourselves up in your most holy faith. You begin and you end in faith. You keep looking to the Lord, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. Because without faith it's impossible to please him. You're on a hiding to nothing. The only hope you've got is in the Lord, so draw near to him. And when you fall short, think of the child illustration learning to walk. And he delights in you. He won't cast you off. He's not accepting you on the basis of your performance. He's accepting you on the basis of his only begotten son. So walk out your obedience by confidence in Christ. Draw near, lay hold, take to heart and he will not cast you way. Remember the pelican on the lamppost. He had the better view. The higher up you perch, the more you can see. A heavenly perspective will make all the difference. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a loving Father to us. You care about us enough to discipline us and that's painful. And sometimes we confuse that with rejection. But we know there's a world of difference between being chastised out of love and being rejected out of indifference. That the main difference is that you want to train us and teach us because you love us so much and you'll welcome us. You prune us that we might bear more fruit. Help us to understand that, Lord. May we not be like children who, who think that their parents hate them because they're getting a smack or because they're sent to their room or because they can't play with their favourite toy. Help us, Lord, to grow to maturity and understand that you withhold these things for our good, that you build us up in our faith so that we can handle bigger and better and more important responsibilities. Grow us up, Lord, in you. Bring us to the place of deep and constant and growing obedience because of love, out of gratitude. Out of thankfulness, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.